0: Welcome to the world of critical care. Today begins a new series on electrolytes, and I'm really excited about this series because I'm excited to learn. Every time I study these topics, I learn new things. It's really fun. I think it's something that, regardless of where you work in critical care, this knowledge just helps fill those gaps. It can make you a better educator. It can make you a better bedside nurse, advanced practice provider, etc. I think this, in terms of Topics to really sink your teeth into. Electrolytes, electrolyte functioning, their abnormalities are so central in critical care. And so I think it's really worth the deep dive to understand these important processes. Now, this episode today will be a general overview of sodium. And then after that, we're going to have a separate episode on sodium's involvement in its critical physiological processes. So this will, this will specifically include topics like the regulation of sodium with the renin-aldosterone system and also its involvement in volume status and blood pressure. We're going to talk about topics such as nerve cells, muscle cells, sodium-potassium pump, and how they are altered and affected by sodium. After that, we're going to have a separate episode on hyponatremia, so decreased sodium levels. Why would this occur? How do we treat it? How low is too low when we really start getting concerned? We're going to talk too. Are there any situations when we would want a decreased sodium level? The final episode, the fourth episode on sodium, will be hypernatremia, so elevated sodium. Again, why could this occur from a pathophysiological standpoint? How high is too high when we really get concerned? How do we bring this back to normal? And then, of course, are there situations where we may want an elevated sodium level? Now, this will be the consistent trend we're going to follow, moving on then to potassium, magnesium, calcium. We're going to talk about phosphorus, et cetera, and follow this similar pattern. Now, let's take a little foundational step here today and talk about lab collection. For all of these labs we're looking at, these are typically going to be collected in a basic metabolic panel or complete metabolic panel. When we think about sodium, this is specifically a serum lab value. This is most often collected in a green top, which is a sodium or lithium heparin tube. So this has a little bit of an anticoagulant in it. When this tube is collected, it's sent to the lab where it is allowed to sit for varied levels of time depending on the lab. It's centrifuged, and the serum is removed. Now, if you've ever seen a blood tube sit, the blood kind of settles to the bottom and we have our red blood cells, it's dark. You have a small kind of opaque milky layer in the middle and then above it, there's a clear yellow layer and that's our serum. Serum is really our plasma minus... Those clotting factors, plasma proteins, etc., and so this allows us to look at our electrolyte and specifically sodium. So, when you see sodium reported as a serum lab, that is specifically what we are looking at. Now, I think it's worth mentioning draw order on labs, and the only reason I bring this up now is because it's something that really was never addressed seriously when I was trained, as I've worked. I'm very thankful we have a lot of our techs draw our labs for us, especially if we have arterial lines, but it's something to think about, and I think it's worth a little pause. Typically, if you have a single access point and you're drawing multiple lab tubes, we want to start with our coagulation lab, so typically a blue top, then our green top, which is what we're concerned with, which is our sodium or lithium heparin tube and follow that up with our purple top, which is typically our blood tube. So we're going to have like a CBC, et cetera, and H&H would be collected from the purple top, and that has EDTA in it. Now, the reason for this order does make a lot of sense. Our green top has heparin in it, or specifically it's a heparinase tube. If this were to be introduced, that heparinase, into our blue top, where we're looking at our coagulation, our coax, that could alter those results. And even though it's a small, minute amount, it could change our results. And so that's why we do start with a blue tube, then a green tube, and then we move to a purple tube. Now, someone might say, well, yes, but the blue top, doesn't that tube have an anticoagulant in it? And yes, it is true, it does have citrate. That's a citrated tube. But remember, citrate can be reversed in the lab with calcium, whereas if we were to accidentally introduce heparin, the heparinase into the tube, that's something they're not expecting and could alter the results. And so that's why we're doing that lab draw order. Something to keep in mind. I know a lot of times when you're grabbing a bunch of labs, it's a crazy moment But it is important to get the lab draw order correct, and it's something I've been trying to implement personally to just be more consistent with. Now, sodium is typically reported in a complete metabolic panel, basic metabolic panel. It's typically one of our first lab values we see reported. It's reported typically in milliequivalents per liter, or we're going to see it in millimoles per liter, depending on your facility. Now... Miloequivalence is interesting because it is the mass times valence divided by your molecular weight. Of course, molecular weight, we're going to have it in milligrams when we look at milliequivalence. Now, that valence topic is important because when we think about sodium, we are going to think of it in a salt form. And so because of that being in the salt form, and typically it's a sodium chloride, when it's in solution, though, it disassociates into the cation sodium so it has a plus one charge so it's deficient an electron and then the chloride anion which will have an extra electron therefore carrying a negative charge because it disassociates it has a valence number of two and that's important because when we think of things such as in chemistry called a colligative property which we think about when we talk about topics like osmosis the number of specific molecules in a solution will alter the movement of water through different semi-permeable membranes. And so when we think of sodium, we think of sodium chloride. We think of a valence of two. It's one sodium chloride, but in solution, it's two molecules. We're thinking of sodium and the chloride. And so equivalents takes this into account, and that's one of the things we're thinking about when we look at a measurement like equivalents. Now, sodium specifically has a range typically of about 135 to 145 equivalents. Every lab's a touch different. I've seen one lab where it was like 134 to 144. I saw one that was like kind of interesting. It was like 137 to 148. It... Your specific labs are going to have slight variations, and that's fine. In general, I always like to think 140 is roughly my norm. I have a kind of an error bar, plus or minus 5, so I'm thinking 135, 145. When I see these lab values, when we are decreased, so we start getting close to 130, we are hyponutremia. That is low sodium. If we are getting close to 150, we're going to call it hypernutremia. Uh, the natrium, or I think that's how you say it in Latin, just means sodium. And so that's how we're, or natrium, and that's how we're getting that term specifically. When we see those, those different ranges with sodium, you always, again, want to think about your lab values and ask, do I trust these lab values? Did I draw it correctly? One big concern with sodium and sodium labs in particular that we tend to run into is dilution effects. And so if you're drawing from a central line and you also have sodium chloride infusing next to a, having it next to a line, always remember there's always that concern. Or if you didn't properly draw back in your tube, you could have some dilutional effect Going on. And so, again, always think about that with your sodium levels. So If you have a sudden delta, so a significant change in lab values, ask yourself Did we do something unique? Also ask yourself Did we just initially have we recently bolused our patient? You know, did we just do a liter NS, a liter LR, et cetera? Those are questions to ask yourself whenever you see a sudden change in your sodium levels. Now, we've kind of talked about our lab collection, we've talked about the lab measurements of sodium we've kind of defined some of our terms. I think it's worth taking a little step back into what is sodium. Sodium's sort of interesting. It's an alkali earth metal. So in our in our periodic table here, I know we're we're getting a little a little bit into the chemistry here, but I do think it's worth mentioning. So it's a group 1 it's in group 1 on your periodic table. It's an S block. So it's in the S block. Now, what's important about this is it has to do with where its outermost electron is in that S orbital. Now, people are going to go, who cares about the S orbital? What on earth do I care? Well, it's important because that electron is super easily lost. And so sodium is very, very reactive. But because of that, it tends to form salts very easily. And so we like to, we'll see things like sodium chloride because it is incredibly stable. And so we don't actually see just sodium metal occurring really in nature very much. And, and, and when we do create it in labs, it is highly, highly reactive. Now we talked briefly about that cation, anion, that ionic bond that it forms with chloride in particular. And this is important because of what sodium is able to do is that it is able in the in water, so a polar solvent, which is water, sodium is the solute, it very easily disassociates, but also is very stable in that polar solvent. And that's important medically. Sodium plays a critical role in maintaining Our fluid status, and specifically in the extracellular fluid, that is where our sodium is primarily located. And so we're looking at, again, 140 milliequivalents per liter is our normal amount of sodium in that extracellular space. Intracellularly, our sodium levels are pretty low. We're talking ballpark, maybe I think about 14, 15 milliequivalents, so a bit lower compared to our extracellular space. This differential, intracellularly to extracellularly, is critical because it maintains those critical gradients for osmosis and its relationship to water. And so sodium is one of our primary drivers of our volume status. And specifically, we talked about a little bit of that colligative property, and we also kind of mentioned this colligative property when we talked about things like protein and albumin, right? We need to have a specific amount of those proteins. And the more proteins we have, water can move into the intravascular space, right, to maintain that protein gradient. And so, a similar effect with sodium. And sodium is so critically important. And so if we have a decreased level of sodium, in the extracellular space where so sodium is decreasing we tend to have cellular swelling which is a significant concern so that gradient in this situation is such that we would have a net movement of water into our cells now conversely let's say we have an elevated sodium level extracellularly now in this situation It's a little too high compared to normal, and in this situation, we have water moving out of our cells into that extracellular space to try to maintain that ideal level, that gradient level when we think about osmosis. And so that's what's so critical about sodium, though, is it is the driver of water. You could always think of sodium as sort of our captain of water. Sodium plays such a critical role in the movement of fluid from the intracellular space to extracellular space. And remember, extracellular space, we can think of that as interstitial but also intravascular. And so remember that too. Our interstitial space and our intravascular space are still extracellular fluid. But those disparities are important because, remember, that interstitial fluid is pretty significant in the body and incredibly important to maintain as well our intravascular volume. And so sodium is the main mover in terms of how we think about their levels. It's also important, I think, at this point to mention why do we call these electrolytes? Now, an electrolyte quite simply allows for electrical conduction, and specifically in solution here. So we've got our polar solvent water. We have our electrolytes, which have positive and negative charges, and they allow for the movement of electrical activity. And so this is really important. When we think about things like muscle cells, we think about things like nerve cells. They are critical. And so our electrolyte levels allow these functions to occur. And so sodium, one, is involved at a critical level with volume status, but additionally it is a critical component of maintaining those ideal isoelectric points, right, so we can have the right type of nerve firing, muscle firing. And when our electrolytes are abnormal, it can alter the, the functioning of those cells. And so that really jumps into what the next episode is going to talk about. So we're going to talk about nerve cells, muscle cells. We'll talk about the action potential. We're also going to jump into the sodium-potassium pump and how that works. And then finally, we'll finish the episode off with a discussion of the renin-aldosterone system and how our body is able to regulate naturally its sodium levels. And then, of course, the following two episodes after that, will be in-depth examinations of hyponatremia and hypernatremia. Thanks for listening as always. I'm going to try to I'm trying to keep these a little shorter, so that's why I'm stopping today here and look for the next episode to be released on Monday, which will be the physiological overview of sodium